Hey there, my name's Cam Fraser. Welcome back to the Men's Sex and Pleasure podcast. This is episode number two. We're talking about all things masculinity, sexuality, male bodies, and men's experiences of pleasure. Today, I've got the pleasure of talking to Dr. Simon Martin, who's a registered chiropractor and the founder of Heart School. Simon has studied psychology and anatomy at Curtin University here in Perth, Western Australia, before completing his chiropractic degree at Murdoch Uni, also here at uh, Perth, Western Australia. Simon has had the opportunity to teach neurology at a tertiary level, as well as work in Singapore's Camden Medical Centre. Simon is sought after for his exceptional knowledge and skills in body-based practices, and has shared the stage with new world pioneers of Tantra, Yoga, Shibari, and Shamanism. You can find all of Simon's stuff uh, at his website, which is www.heartschool.com.au or on his Facebook page, which is heartschool.australia or on his Instagram page, which is at heart.school. I had an awesome chat with Simon about freezing and friending, which are two nervous system responses, particularly stress responses in the body and how these can manifest in sexual trauma and the healing specifically of sexual trauma. So this is a super fascinating conversation. Simon's talking about stuff that I haven't really heard other people talk about in this way. And I learned a lot from, from this conversation and I hope that you learn a lot from this conversation as well. So enjoy. A healthy, happy sex life can be one of the most wonderful and exciting parts of a good marriage. Every man's penis can get hard at certain times. Do you ever have that happen to you? Every boy should realize that the size of his genital organs has nothing to do with fertility or his capacity as a male. Thanks for thanks for joining me today, brother. I really um I really value you as a man, and um, I love your insights, and I always get so much value from from talking to you. So I'm I'm so stoked that you're joining me today. Thanks, thanks for being here. Thanks, Kane. Love you too, man. Yeah, <laughs> much love, dude. Thank you. Um, so I'm super familiar with your work. I know I've done some work with you. Um, and maybe even we could say, uh, I've done some, uh, menteeing with you as well. I've, I've considered you a bit of a mentor in my life. So, um, you know, I'm wondering if there's, if there's a little bit of your story that you'd like to share as to how you got to doing what you're doing now. And yeah, sure, mate. Like what, what comes to mind is that today it's actually my dad's birthday. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so I thought I might talk into what got me into the work is, is basically like where I came from with my parents. I picked the right parents. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, like my dad, he was, um, he left school when he was 14 and this is in like the seventies or something. And then he went up to live in the mines. Oh, wow. And then he met my mum when he was like 13 and she was 10. Mm. And you know Mandra? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they were swimming in the Mandra River and jumping off the Mandra Bridge. Dude. And he, he grabbed her and kissed her in the water when she was 10 and he said, I'm going to marry you. No way. Yeah. Mm. And then when, she, mom, when she, my mum was 17, they got married. And then they went off um, and lived up north in Mount Newman. Mm. And uh, worked in mining for 20 years. Dad was building trucks. And he was right into martial arts. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he ran a martial arts school there. And that's where I grew up as a little kid, like in nappies and dad's martial arts studio. <laughs> so he was a really disciplined, like um, a fighter-spirited kind of guy. 
like he'd, you know, go kangaroo hunting. He cut the roof out of his car. And then so he'd get a mate to drive and then he'd go roof shooting. And <laughs> he'd skin the kangaroos, take the skins home and tan them in our bathtub. And mum would get really pissed off because there's kangaroo skins in the bathtub. Wow. And, um, and it was before FIFO. So there was no fly and fly out. Like you go live in the bush. So I'd mm. look over my fence and it's just like spin effects and red dirt growing up. And, you know, when I said to my big brother, oh, I'm running away from home, I'd go get my green sleeping bag and I'd, I'd literally be walking out into the bush. You know? <laughs> and he'd come ask me, oh, no, don't run away from home. <laughs> so I think like, um, and they tried really hard to have kids. I went through a lot, you know, being up north and the birthing's down here. It's, it's a hard task mm. um, back in those days to have children. So they, they I, I grew up knowing that I was really wanted. Mm. And my parents have been together for like over 50 years now. Wow. So it's, I think that's quite a unique um, developmental place to grow up. Yeah. One, because I had like a dad, which most people wouldn't have had. I had a guy that worked ship work in the mines in the 70s, masculine, you know, whatever that means. Mm. Hunter, probably a better word. It was a hunter. And I always felt really protected, right? Like my dad, my brother um, thought he was going to get in trouble one day. So he didn't want to tell my dad something because he thought he was going to get in trouble. Hmm. And he came and he said to the boys, he's like, come sit here. He's like, come sit with me. And he's like, I was just listening. But he said to my big brother, he's like, look, even if you kill someone, if you kill someone, I'm on your side. Hmm. My brother's like, no way. Even if I killed someone, dad, you're on my side. He's like, I'm always on your side. And I'm there as a little brother watching. I'm going, oh. So I had a fantastic bro code. I learned the bro code very young. Mm. So I had dad like that and a big brother who was always looking out for me. And um, martial arts school and all that, Japanese one, so it's kind of structured. Mm. And then on the other side of the coin, I had my mother, right? And she was like extremely compassionate and loving and um, devotional. A very gentle woman, very, you know, doesn't raise her voice often just gave her whole life to her family, really. And the Mount Newman mine, it was probably the biggest open-cut mine in Australia, maybe one of the biggest in the world. So it had high-caliber, high-profile managers. Mm. And my mum was the PA or the secretary to, like, three consecutive uh, Mount Newman mining managers. So on one hand, I had a dad that was extremely um, hunter and then I had a, a mother who was extremely lover. Mm. So that created this high contrast um, dynamic that later in life meant I had to integrate those two polarities you know, for an inner union. So I had a lot of life lessons to actually find that inner marriage within myself, which was modelled from my parenting. And um, not only that, but I, when my mother was giving birth to me, the doctors said, and my brother said, we want to terminate the birth. Because oh, wow. it was high risk, it was at risk. Mm. So she actually said to the doctors, no, like this is back then when doctors kind of, what doctors say, um, what they meant kind of happens. Mm. And she stood up to the doctors and said, no, I'm going to die. Like you bring, you bring my son into the world. Mm. So like I grew up not ever for one second doubting that I was loved or wanted. 
and not only that, but I grew up with parents that have been together since they were 10 years old. You know? So in my developmental neurology, couples stay together. They stay together for life and they love each other unconditionally. Mm. And so, yeah, like that's my life story pretty much. And then I got sent to boarding school. Like they worked their ass off to send me to the most expensive school in Perth, which was a boys' school and a boarding school. So there was this kind of weird developmental stuff that was happening. And now that I've matured into an adult or a young man, I realised that it was all purposeful. Like I chose those challenges of that life to birth my purpose in the world, which did involve emotional health and intimacy and sexuality as a man. Mm. Um, So, yeah, I guess that's when people ask, like, how did you get to where you are, you know, or why you? Did you get to, you know, have this cool stuff happen to you? I think it's not because of me or the virtue of me being any smarter than anyone else or any more apt. Like I was a very lousy lover and, I'm, and I've only had it like just a couple of, well, I've had three long-term relationships pretty much my whole life and I'm mid-30s now. Mm. People get really surprised to hear that um, with my profile around Australia with this sort of work. And um, yeah, it's not because of like, it's despite me that I've been successful. It's more because of I picked the right parents. Mm. So, like, my first ever job was as a chiropractor in Singapore where the charity, it was a, the woman had to actually take a year sabbatical. She, she was in a high-profile clinic called in Camden Medical Centre. Like, for anyone who's been to Singapore, there's a road called Scott's Road, which is the main road, and there's a, there was a main medical centre there um, called the Camden Medical Centre, which had a chiropractic office in there for corporate wellness or corporate emotional health. Mm. And that was my first ever job working there, like once I graduated. And the reason I got the job was because the woman's charity for sexual abuse in Southeast Asia had gone so well, she took a year sabbatical to focus on that. And that was all around pulling um, young girls out of brothels and putting them into female boarding houses. So she was talking to retired SAS soldiers and stuff. Like one, I don't need to mention their names, mm. but they'll go in and extract these girls from um, those environments. And because that was the, the goodwill of this chiropractic practice, it attracted a lot of high-profile women, especially, who had a history of sexual abuse. Mm. And what astounded me was the rate and the level so here I am, this 25-year-old guy working on, like, very high-profile, mature uh, corporate executive women and holding their sexual trauma in, with my hands. And, like, um, even remember the youngest girl I worked with was, was a 10-year-old girl that got pulled out of a brothel in northern Thailand, like Cambodia and northern Thailand were the places this charity worked the most with. And I just remember putting my hands on these muscles called the upper traps of her body. And, I, and they were so hard and ropey. And I'd never felt a little, like almost an infant, like a little girl, with the, with the, with the, like the, the renitency of her musculature was like a full-grown woman mm. who'd had a rough life. So it was like, that's where I kind of cut my teeth. And I didn't realise I was getting kind of groomed to 
um, maybe have a role in bringing some healthy emotional health and intimacy and basically just being a safe male. Mm. I think that's one of the most important gifts that a, a male can offer their community. Like we're all, we're not perfect, but on a personality level, but in our bodies, having the imprint of being able to hold or touch or be in the presence of um, a female body person, especially, and giving their nervous system a very safe imprint. And um, I'd love to talk into what that means because I think it's very relevant for the, um, the conscious sexuality movement, which is growing so much. Yeah, totally, man. Um, yeah, I'd love for you to speak yeah. into, into that a bit more if, you, if you're comfortable doing that. Sure. Awesome. So, um, in my opinion, right, in my experience, what I noticed is, like, I, I actually, it wasn't ever, my, my path was emotional health and chiropractic originally. And then I fell in love with a really beautiful woman who was very heavily engaged in, I guess, like adult sexual education. And um, um, and that kind of world. So being in that environment, I started to attract a lot of clients who were um, uh, in, in, the, in the fields, various different fields of sex work, like uh, prostitutes, strippers, um, sexual educators, um, dancers, or women who are just, um, you know, in divorce rehab or had sexual trauma when they were younger. Started to work with it more and more. And what I noticed was I, I noticed some, some things about their bodies from an embodiment point of view which were, which were different, like as a biotype to women in other like um, work industries or backgrounds, developmental kind of patterns. And uh, I, I, like working in this field, like I've, it's lovely to be able to have this conversation with you particularly because you get it, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, um, what I noticed was one of two things, usually both would happen with emotional healing, with sexually abused young women in, or young girls in women's bodies. And the first was the idea of dearmoring. Mm. We hear that word being used a lot in the industry. In the context I'm using it is when, you, when, people, when people experience safety and suppleness being brought into their body and their heart. So in the chiropractic context, that's when the abdomen is breathing, shoulders are relaxed, back of the neck isn't contracting, the jaw's not clenched, all these kind of markers. It's actually quite rare, in my opinion, for women to experience even moments of being completely dearmoured in their body. And this doesn't have to be a sexual practice. In my opinion, it's, for the most part, emotional intimacy or just emotional um, safety. And um, for people who are attuned, like yourself, I reckon we find it's actually quite easy if you've got the right kind of touch to bring people's nervous systems into that state of awareness. And it's not just a form of touch, it's a way of being. 
and that way of being, in my opinion, is that the touch isn't, isn't a penetrative touch and it's not a taking touch, it's, it's a listening touch without agenda. So you put your hands anywhere, really. I'll start with the abdomen. And then it's not like you're trying to fix them. It's letting go of that attachment touch into a listening touch. And then it's an active listening touch, which, which allows the body to speak for itself. Kind of like you now, you're active listening to me. It's taking the same principles and putting it to the body. And eventually, with a few little tricks and tips, you can get to the point where the body naturally and organically it, it unfolds in, in witness and presence to a place of its organic conclusion, which is for the heart to be open. And what I find is that there are men, there's actually quite a lot of men popping up who can access this um, space of embodied presence. Right? But opening, opening the nervous system of a client or a partner or a friend into this window, right, to, this is where I think the field gets a bit lost or can, can fall, hit it, trip over a speaker. The first one is what I think is the most common. Most common, it's, it's an error, it's a mistake and it's a failing. It's kind of like in martial arts where you don't get hurt by black belts. You get hurt by people who know a little bit. Mm. That's who's going to hurt you when you're fighting or sparring. Right? So people who can access, open this window in their clients' nervous systems, they've got a bit of knowledge. Right? But then when they're in that space, women will typically drop into one of two primary tension responses or stress responses. The most common one is like a freeze type dynamic. But I'm not talking about the catatonic type of animalistic, you know, um, dorsal vagal type freeze. I'm talking about a woman in her vulnerability, crying, sobbing, like uh, the victim consciousness or whatever it is, that stage of healing which hasn't been reconciled. And the, the, the developmental age of this space, it might have been triggered by a divorce or whatnot or the loss of, or loss of a loved one. But in my opinion, primarily, even a, even a deeper layer of sexual abuse is actually just basic developmental trauma of life. And here's the key thing I'd love to deliver and for us to hear as brothers in this, for our brethren doing this kind of intimacy healing, essentially. It's, it's that part of the animal, it's part of the male or the hunter which which finds vulnerability as the same as desirability. It's a body-based instinctual thing. Like the perfect analogy is when I think back to my, my childhood sweetheart, right? I, I'll do the wrong thing. I could be out drinking or whatever or not showing up in the relationship. And it gets to the point where there might be a disagreement or, someone's feelings are hurt and then you have that those meaningful conversations and then there's a breaking you you know often of the woman body person in heterosexual relating mm. where there's this vulnerability that's just so compelling and it's just you'll do anything for them in that in that and there's tears and softness it's it's like like a baby and it's like 
you, the, the mind just says, I love you so much. Mm. Right? Because you're seeing them beyond the mind and just in pure vulnerability. And that can be very attractive. Right? And it can lead to make-up sex. Right? I recognise almost like a... Um a fetishization of that in yes. the pornography world and in the kind of um, that mainstream erotic world of uh, even like um, I can, I can even think to uh, Japanese style um, yep. uh, animation, uh, pornographic animation as well, uh, where the younger um, vulnerable kind of innocent mm -hmm. um, woman yeah. is sexually objectified. So I, I, yeah. I definitely resonate with, with what you're saying. And I think it's reflected mm -hmm. in, in, in that, that sense. hundred percent brother. It's kind of like the victim maiden archetypal relating exaggerated. Mm -hmm. And it's all about power over power under power dynamic thing. hundred percent. You feel like a boss or a hero because you know, you're holding them in their vulnerability. Sure. Sure. However, like if we talk, if we go back into the theory, I was suggesting, if you, if you know, to stay with me here, it's like the I believe that the seed of a lot of that emotional trauma is actually developmental from the bond between the hunter and the child, or the father and fathering archetype and the child. So what's actually needed to um, recapitulate or reconcile that um, um, emotional pain is the eyes of a father. And what I mean by that, it's the, the, the physiological posturing of intimacy that is heart dominant. So when I've got the, when I've got the, the body of an extremely attractive woman, which is all women in their vulnerability, right? It can be, the instinctual senses, it can be very compelling to indulge the, the merging of that um, experience, right? From a place of finding it desirable and looking at them from the eyes of desirability even if it's only emotional. However, my, my, my promise or my experience tells me that that is, a, that is a perfect opportunity to see the beautiful you know, woman or man in front of you as a child, in your partner, in your friend, in your, you know, even in your brothers, or even in your own father, own mother, ultimately, like being able to hold the, that, those eyes where you're witnessing from heart dominance like a father would with their daughter, hold them in that way. And I, I really believe that, you know, to use the word God, God only will give you what you can handle. And Goddess will usually give you something that's always upon the edge of that. So if you've been... You know, if, if the community in its wisdom and intelligence has put the inner child of a woman in front of you, then it's saying, hey, we think you can, you, you, you could do this, you know. Mm. Keeping in mind that's a reflection of your own inner child or your own life on some level. And it's just like that's what sublimation is.
if, if it wasn't challenging and it wasn't desire, it wouldn't be hard. It wouldn't be a race. Like as my Bogan boxer mate used to say, like he was a rower and this, this woman stopped rowing in the race once. Half of Australia was saying, oh, fair enough, she blew up. But my Bogan boxer mate, who was a rapper, he's like, the whole point of rowing is that it's hard and you don't stop. Right, that's the whole point that it's hard. You don't you do it and you don't stop. That's the point of running a race. You don't walk. Mm. If you're walking, it's not a race. It's not hard. That's like I think you know to take it's just a very slight divergence. Sure. Like that's that's a point of relationships. Of course, you could be with someone else. <laughs> like, mm. That's the whole point. Anyway, well that that's my opinion coming in. <laughs> Let's get back to this because <laughs> I'm a marriage man, as we're getting to later. <laughs> as we're pointing out soon. This framework or this theory that you've set up, do you think that plays into why we're seeing so many like uh, higher up male teachers in the tantra sexuality world? Um, mm. You know, stuff's coming out around them. Uh, being sexually abusive or sexually manipulative or sexually exploitative. Do you reckon that that dynamic is playing into those cases? A very good question. A hundred percent. And um, I think I'm a reasonably well-equipped person to talk into that a little bit. Um, yeah. And because what that one touches into is the second, I reckon more the second primary tension or stress response that I believe women go into when men are working with them, and often it's, it's in the context of emotional trauma or sexual healing, that I, I don't play the blame game. I reckon if, if, if men or women are stepping up to do this work, then it, it's, it's not easy. Mm. Because the, you're, when you're working with another person, it's essentially a paired practice. And you can only really go um, as deep in a couple practice as you can go in your own. And there's so many variables when you're working with the shadow, you're working with trauma, you're working with sexual energy. Mm -hmm. Just to give you a couple of examples, like I was doing this work when I was married. It was like my wife was asking me to work on people that she cared for deeply. You know, so that, that's a dynamic, right? Mm. But then we went through a bit of a separation. We were having some difficulties, right? And I kept on doing the same work. But, but guess what I found? it was much harder to sublimate because I didn't have a solid paired practice with my wife to move my own intimate energy. So when I was working with others, I was noticing this is a lot harder to sublimate and actually give this person an impression of a person who can have their heart fully open, their instincts fully open without shame, but without taking all attachment to that mm. and with the eyes of a father. Like it become really challenging. Like I could still do it, but I'm like, whoa! I'm, I'm, you know, been pretty much preparing my whole life for this, and sure. just that one variable was compromising the ability to actually hold a woman into um, a corrective experience, in effect. So, like, without stalling too much, like the the second tension response is one that that it's a bit cheeky. This is my I've got a bit of a bit of a dark side as people would know not a dark side but you know <laughs> i can be difficult <laughs> but yeah, in the trauma I'll, industry i'll agree with that <laughs> sometimes <laughs> and i can feel like a few people watching this video going mm -hmm. mm, yep <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, that's not <laughs> hard to imagine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <there's> yeah. <laughs> anyway, so um, we blush. <laughs> My human side, whatever. Mm. Anyway, let's keep moving forward. Like in the trauma industry, they've got the four tension responses fight and flight. You know, if the bad guy's smaller, you fight. If they're bigger, you flight. And then the status quo in the trauma industry is with, um, with the female oxytocin-dominant tension responses because they're more selective bonding with children. They go into freeze because they don't want to run away from the children. They don't want to fight with the children. The other, one's, the, the other one, the status quo is fawning, Stockholm Syndrome, where you kind of like give affection or love to the alpha or the person you uh, perpetrate or the person that could be unsafe, usually the alpha of the space. Right? But the thing is, I really have a beef with that because fight is like an alpha male who goes into, into distress. When there's a tension point, an alpha will go like into arguing or into the problem and a flight will go away from it. Right? So that, that's cool. It's like it's gender balanced. With women who are usually more oxytocin dominant, right, it's less physical, it's more psycho-emotive, their tension responses, according to reference journals. So if someone freezes, that's, that's a placative, agreeable, going away from a stressor. But the thing is with the status quo, with fawning, that's also being placative and agreeable. So, like, in my opinion, there is, a, there is something in shadow within the model of the trauma industry, and that is the alpha female, the dark mm. goddess. Yeah, Toga, which is all about emotion, sexuality, yeah, these sorts of realms, intimacy. So the alpha female, right, and it's having accountability for that, what I call the, the tiger, the big cat, and it's in men as well. It's very strongly expressed in, in men because usually it's even more in shadow. But it's this, this tension response which is emotionally dominant. So it goes into the stress and it dominates the pirate or the, the threat in, an, in, a, in a sexual, emotional or social way through connecting. So I look at it like the FBI agent who's like really sassy and attractive and then they go to the, the ball or the, the regalia ball and then they court 007 and then they you know, court each other into the bedroom and then she kills him, you yeah, know, or right. tries to when they're in bed, right? So that's like the extreme friending. That's just to give you a, a um, archetypal overview of the of the stress response. What I want to do now is just give you what I think is that I think the heart of yeah, I reckon I'd go as far as to say it's the heart of sexual healing industry. So. Just to go backtrack, there's a lot of men who have got presence and embodied touch to open that window of the heart. Primary attention response people go to is vulnerability, crying, vulnerability, etc. The other one is, is harder to see and hard, harder for the eyes to see and harder for the ego to, to pierce the veil of. Mm. And that is the pheromones get released. And I don't know, to use an aesthetic, poetic, artistic license, it's kind of like the woman's serpent comes out. And you might feel what's called countertransference in psychology where you start to, well, the, the encounter 
tries to provoke an arousal response in the practitioner. Right? And that's hard to, to see. But what can happen is if you can, if you can get experience with it and see it, you can go, ah, oh, no. Right? And the level of attraction is actually level to the amount of trauma they've got. Because what's happening is there's fear and they don't want to go through that fear into safety of the heart. So the serpent is trying to undermine the power differential between the practitioner and client. That's what's trying to happen. And if the practitioner indulges it on an unconscious level, he loses the positive transference or the, the healthy father-child archetype and starts to become instinctual, loses heart dominance, becomes base dominance. Your mind can tell you whatever story you want to come up with. But at the end of the day, the truth of the matter is the body has given a, um, um, an experiential imprint and made things worse. They've embedded the trauma deeper because it, it's given the nervous system the idea that when you give your heart to someone, it's transactional. So love's not unconditional. So they found their way to you because you had the potential to give them an imprint of unconditional love, you know, or a corrective experience around, hey, it's okay to have intimacy without having to give anything to be taken. Mm -hmm. You are safe here in my arms. Yeah? And if you can do that, that's the precipice of being an awakened sexual healer. Right? And then I even go as far as to say, once you've arrived at that point, you lose interest in being a sexual healer. And why do you say that? Uh, my opinion is you teach what you need to know. Sure. So what in front of you, what's in your hands is a reflection of some wounded part of ourself, you know, mm. all the people we love or our tribe. And um, yeah, like if the same principles maybe will get applied to a new dynamic. Like when I was doing that kind of work, my beliefs was that sacred union was the pinnacle. Or When I say sacred union, I mean uh, the sexual union between a husband and a wife was the peak existence. That was the peak state. That's the reason that we're born, to actually experience uh, a husband and wife come together in, in embodied out of marriage matrimony and, and play each other like a devotional song and reach those places of, of um, remembering how we're, we're the same and look at each other and be like, whoa, we're one but we're two, you know, like that ineffable zone that people can arrive to in dissociative drug-taking experiences, but we can actually have that, like, like uh, what Ramana Rekhat Tolle talks about, that witness, but instead of it being like dissociated, it's actually fully embodied. And I'm not saying like that, I'm sure there's some awakened souls who could walk through life like that, but what I was certain or in my awareness around from my marriage was that it was possible to access moments of that. You know, in marriage, you know, what people can, you know, those, those awakened type of experiences people can access through sort of mother nature or the, the sacred medicines, you know, it was my um, path to understand that that was available through 
the sanctity of two people loving each other in the art of marriage. And my, my belief was that that needed to be sexual. And I think in part that's probably the medicine of my separation was to learn that it's easy to have those peak experiences when you're in consummation of pleasure. Mm. I think a, a harder or pricklier path, but a, you know, the path left travelled is to have a, have a lifetime of having the shadow to that light, of actually, you know, is it possible to love someone as deeply without having the pleasure bond? Like just, just love, <laughs> you know, which is maybe what Jung talks about when he bangs on about the inner marriage or self-actualization or reconciling anima and animus and whatnot for those mm. who are into psychotherapy. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, so, so once, just to answer your question more simply, once um, I was having experiences of women having those encounters and I realised how hard it was that's when I was ready to move on. And I only realised how hard it was when um, I let go of judgement. I was so judgmental of all the practitioners in the community, high-profile ones, who I was, you know, pretty forthright in saying most of them should be in jail. Because when women were going to them for corrective experiences from sexual abuse, when their friending responses were being activated, not only were they being merged with and seen with wanting eyes and, you know, loose tongues, as Charles Dickens would say, they would engage with them and they would consummate pleasure at the expense of their client, right, which is the definition of evil if they're doing it, you know, because the, the polarity that is created in those sexual healing environments is an exaggerated one of father-daughter. So their friending response and their genital arousal is exaggerated. Their perception of, of the person is exaggerated with a power differential, which creates a high tension, high emotional and sexual tension. So that can actually be exploited to a point where the clients actually think that they've been like awakened. They've had a goddess awakening session or they've been initiated by the master. And it's like, no. That's even worse. You think you've been awakened, but your true response has actually been embedded even deeper into your nervous system. And where do these people, nature wants to heal it. So these people go back and they work out this through failed relating, failed relationships. And not only that, but they initiate students into the same dynamic, kind of like a vampiric um, model, you know. So I was very judgmental of men and women in this industry because women tend to get away with it you know because it's more the men where it's more uh obvious because they're penetrative or whatnot um but then when i actually reached a level of um popularity where i you know wasn't competing with these teachers anymore was i experienced how hard it was it was very humbling to not engage with the friending response of a deeply traumatised woman who's expressing trauma not just for her but for her tribe and her bloodline and who knows what else. You know, it goes so deep when the pineal gland starts to get activated in these environments. Mm. And um, it took me right to my edge. 
And at the beginning of this talk, you know, I did um, share with you, like my upbringing has really geared my nervous system to be committed to my partner and unconditionally loving, you know. So, like, I'm someone who's basically had over 30 years preparing myself to integrate this friending response. And I was still taken to the point where it's like, you know what? No more judgment anymore. I get it. Mm. And I stopped looking at these um, teachers and pioneers of this field with judgment. I started to, I start to give them compassion because I realised, like, they're victims all the time of young women taking advantage of their um, limit, limits. And not only that, but I started to look at them like um, what the Book of Enoch would call the Nephilim. You know, they, they're, they're actually higher than the average person. But the Nephilim were these fallen angels who lost it after earthly women, right, led by Lucifer. And then they got buried for 13 generations or whatever. So, but even the Nephilim, you know, to use biblical mythology, even the Nephilim were angels once. So I, I healed my wounding through essentially a little bit of an Oedipa. For those who know psychotherapy, the Oedipal complex of being competitive with the father. My father was, you know, a fighter. I had a strong resistance thing to reconcile. Um, power and love to reconcile in my coming of age. And as soon as I arrived to that point, something very interesting happened. And that is my involvement or role in that community fell away. Or maybe it didn't fall away, but, but maybe interviews like this is an opportunity to come back to it, yet from a, from a higher or from a deeper, more subtle place. Yeah, totally, man. Totally. And I, I yeah, resonate with a lot of what you've said. There's a lot to digest and I'm sure people will, will go back and re-listen to a lot of what you've shared uh, over, the last, over the last hour. And I'm wondering, Thanks, brother. like a takeaway, um, at least a takeaway that I know I've shared with you before, when we've had conversations similar to this is, is like in a heterosexual context, like men learning how to quote unquote, to use a buzzword phrase, hold space for their women when they're, when they're erotically expressing, right. When they're, when they're tapping into what mm. maybe you would call yeah. the friending or the fawning response uh, and not engaging in that, yeah. but, but, but again, use some yeah. buzzwords that maybe resonate with people, but just to witness or observe that erotic expression and not to, not to engage with it and not to, um, not to uh, maybe some stronger words. Yeah. Indulge or succumb to it, you know, in a sense. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Um, and to allow that to erotically express because there's healing in that expression that doesn't involve engagement with it. Yeah. hundred percent. So what's like a take home kind of principle yeah yeah totally what would you what would you yeah. if you well, could sum it up if, if yeah like there's practical right you can learn practical forever my whole life is all about practice now and keeping it simpler and simpler a bit like mm. martial arts where you start off simple you get complicated and you come back to simple like music and i, I feel like the, the basic um, take home the ethos of it all is you can only have attachment or pleasure uh, engagement to the same level that you have non-attachment. Mm. So it's not to say that indulging the friending is wrong. It's not to say indulging freeze is wrong. The first is just getting awareness, being able to name the shadow, 
right? But then once you name the shadow, let's not make it wrong. Let's start to work with it right? as adults. And then all of, all of a sudden we let go. Yeah, like you can, you can be both. You can be the Nephilim and you can be, you know, the, the saviour or whatever. Yeah. Mm. So you can open up. And that, that to me is the dance of sacred sexuality of like going in like a pirate, going into the shadow, creating those arousal responses, working with power dynamic, power play, right? Psychologically and embodied. And then opening people into being with the heart being the master. And, so, yeah, and to me, that's the practice. And just to close <laughs> with a bit of yeah, assignment. Sure. Yeah, go for it. That practice is an instrument. Is, is the beloved becomes like an instrument or a song. Right? And if you want to have a real song, there needs to be commitment to that instrument. Which is why I feel true sacred sexuality isn't the art of how to love a man. It isn't even the art of how to love a woman, my friends and my <laughs> brethren. <laughs> it's the art of marriage. To choose your instrument and commit to it consistently and find her rhythm, find her song. And that is the traditional sacred sexuality. Beautiful, man. Beautiful. Yeah, I love that sentiment. Thank you, brother. Yeah, thank you for, for <laughs> you got it, right? For building up <laughs> you to it as well. Yes, I appreciate that, man. Yeah, you're um, <laughs> you're you're a, a, a very insightful, insightful man and practitioner, and I appreciate the the knowledge that you've been dropping um, over the last hour. So thank you for for diving into all that, man. I really um really appreciate it. Cheers, brother, and thank you for the invitation. And I feel very comfortable being out of the scene, knowing that someone like yourself and your beautiful partner are holding point for reverence in relation to relating and also bringing the song through. Mm, thank so, you, man. Thank you. Yeah. Well done as modeling a, a couple, yeah, who's finding mm. love and freedom together. You're doing mm. good. Thank you, my like brother. A little brother to me. Yes, and a big bro. I appreciate that, man. I appreciate it. And very similar sentiments yeah. um, from me. Uh, so take, take care. Love, light, dark, and shadow. <laughs> mm, thank you, man.